Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from July 4th by Pastor Randy, titled, Teach Us to Pray, Part 8. Abby had questions. I've got a question for you. Raise your hand if you've ever been in love. All right. Good. Sometimes things just don't go as planned, right? You thought you were in trouble. Now I'm in trouble. All right. More awkward of a question. Raise, in, raise your hand if you're in love right now. Now, you see, that can be different. Because if you're a couple and one of you raised your hand and one of you didn't, that could be trouble. Or a lot of times, uh, I used to speak to college students a whole lot, and and you ask something like that, and you see a couple who's been dating, and one of them raises their hands and the other one doesn't. That can be very awkward. Or what they're actually saying is, yes, I'm in love, just not with you. That can be even more awkward. But you know things are going deeper. You know that your relationship is getting stronger when you just enjoy communion. You just enjoy just being together. Because when you first start dating on your first date, you have to have a talk list, right? Here's some things we're going to talk about. How is your job today? And if all you get back is, okay, you go, man, I thought we could talk for 30 minutes about that. Now i got to come up with other things to talk about. Or else, if you don't have a talk list, you're, you're not talking. The girl will go home and she'll say, that guy was such a jerk. He was such a moron. He didn't say anything the whole time. Or maybe the guy has all the cool talking points and the girl's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But you know your relationship is going deeper when you can just enjoy being together. You know your, that relationship, that, 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 that community that you have together is, is just happening when sometimes you're talking and sometimes you're just quiet. Sometimes you're sharing spectacular things. Sometimes you're just sharing mundane things. Sometimes you're sharing things that just fill you up with joy. Sometimes you're sharing tears together. Sometimes you feel so close. Other times it's, I'm not sure why I'm into this, but I'm committed to you. But, but the point is this. The point is communion is always going on. When your relationship goes deeper and deeper, communion is always going on. So we've been in this series on prayer for oh, six or seven weeks. This is the last of it this morning. And so as we finish up, here's what we're going to, here's how we're going to sum this up this, today. Prayer is meant to be a constant communion with God. Constant communion with Him. See, prayer is not just some simply little three-minute thing, God, here's my list, and walk out the door. Prayer is when you're doing life together, sharing life with God. You're just happy to be together. Think of, it, think of it this way. We often hear that phrase, or, or some people hear that phrase, pray without ceasing. And what comes to a lot of people's mind is, how could I ever do that? That would mean us going around all the time just talking to God. God, can you do this for me? God, do this. God, do this. Because when some people hear pray about ceasing, 
that well, the way they interpret it is I'm always just giving my God requests because that's how they think about prayer. So all through the day, they're thinking, how can I just go, God, give me this. God bless this. God, do this for me. I got to drive, don't I? I got to go to work, don't I? There's other things I have to do. Because for them, prayer is just giving God a list. And so that's how they define that, that pray without ceasing is always just giving God a list. But prayer is not meant to be that. Prayer is not just, God, here's what I want you to do and walking out the door. Prayer is meant to be that, that constant communion with God. Think of it this way. Remember back when you first learned how to drive and you're getting in that car maybe for the first time and you're going to drive. You get in, you adjust the seat, you put your seatbelt on, you check your mirrors out, you go 10 and 2, and then you're nervous because, you okay, now i got to back up. Now can I, can I get this? Can I back up? And you're nervous about backing up. And, and you learn how when you pull it to a stop sign that, that you let out the brake a little bit so you don't just jerk back and forth. And then you think, man, this is going to be bad because i got to take a driver's test and i got to parallel park. Some of you still can't parallel park. So you're driving down the road. As you're driving, you're, you're just taking everything in. You know, okay, red light. Oh, i got to change lanes. I'm so nervous. Now i got to change lanes. Can I do that right? And, and all this stuff, you're, you're, you just want to get it right. Back a, a week and a half ago, my grandkids are up here. My oldest one is 16. Oldest grandson is 16. So he's learning how to drive. Doesn't have a permit yet, but he's learning how to drive. And so we go to Fred Meyer. We're coming back, and I just handed the kids, why don't you drive home? Gets in the driver's seat, adjusts the seat, puts the seat belt on, puts his hands at 10 and 2, you know. And then he, then he does this. <laughs> now, this is the brake and this is the gas, right? <laughs> at first, for a split second, I thought, he's kidding me. He's pulling me. Then I thought, he's serious. This is going to be a long ride home. But, but he, I said, Javen, if you don't know that by now, we're in trouble. He goes, I'm just checking. I'm just checking. But that's the way it is when you first learn how to drive, right? You want to get everything right. And, and, and his mind is always, okay, you know, what's the speed limit? Look at the speed. You know, he, he's just checking everything. But then after you've been driving for a few years, you just get in the car and go. You get in the car and go. You change radio stations. You sing to the music. You may eat something and do a whole lot of things you probably shouldn't be doing while you're driving. But you're, you just, it's like a second nature. You do it without thinking. But it's not really without thinking because as you're doing it, you're mindful. Oh, there's cars right here by my side. There's another one, you know, behind me. And, and, and you're looking over to change lanes. And, and, and so there are times when you're more focused than others. But, but you're always just, you always have that in the back of your mind. And prayer is somewhat like that. Not that prayer is a mundane task like driving, but as you're going through the day, you're always factoring in God. You're always thinking about him. He's always on your mind. You're always thinking, okay, just like when you drive, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. And you, you just factor it through. That's the way it is to be with prayer, that you're just communing with God all day long. He's always there in the back of your mind. Sometimes it's, it's in direct communication, but, but you're always aware of his presence. 
So, what we want to see is prayer is meant to be a constant communion with God, but let's take it a step further. Prayer is a constant communion with God to know God and to catch His heartbeat and agenda for your life. To know what God has on His mind. What He wants to happen, what He wants to do in your life. Because I promise you, God has an agenda for you and everybody you come across in your life. God has an agenda for your fellow co-worker. He has a gender for that person you meet at the grocery store. He has a gender for your friends. He has a gender for everyone you come across in your life. And you want to pray, God, I want to be on your agenda because it's about your kingdom, not mine. So I want to, I want to have this constant communion with you. And I want to, to catch what you want to do in my life today. So I want to be on your, your agenda. I want to know what your heart is for these people that are meeting, what, what I should be about, because I want to be about your agenda, not mine. So prayer is constant communion with God, to know God, to catch his heartbeat and agenda for your life. And we can add this, and to access power and provision for life. Because it's not enough just to commune with God. It's not enough to just know his agenda. You have to be aware of that without him, you can't do anything. It's all up to him and his power to be working in your life because you can't do anything on your own. So here's, here is the, the driving force for prayer. Not the only driving force for prayer, but a main driving force for prayer is this. We're totally dependent on our connection with God. Because we're totally dependent upon God, that should be our driving force for this constant communion with Him. Now, if I were to ask you, when was a time in your life when you were praying really hard, really, really hard, it would probably not be a good time in your life. Because most of our times of hard praying is not before meals or before we go to bed. Most times when we're praying really hard, it's when the bottom has dropped out of our life. Some tragedy has happened. And we go, God, what's going on here? God, I need to see you. God, you need to do something about this. And we pray really hard. Why? Because then we go, God, I'm dependent upon you. But we're that dependent upon God even if tragedy's not happening. We depend upon God just that much. We just don't always realize it. One of my favorite illustrations of this is in Exodus chapter 17. It's when Israel's going through the, their 40 years in the wilderness and they're attacked by the Amalekites. And here's what we read in Exodus 17, 8 through 10. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So Moses said to Joshua, you go to the valley and fight. I'm going to be up on the hill praying for you. Does that sound like a cop-out? You go fight. I'll be praying for you. That sounds like something that you say when you really don't want to do something for somebody. Sorry, I can't help you move, but I'll be praying those boxes are lighter. So Moses goes up to the mountain to pray. And here's the next verse. 
While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. See, whenever Moses has his hands up, that's the prayer position in the Old Testament. When his hands are up, Israel's winning. But when his hands get tired and they start to go down, Israel starts to lose. Now there's lots of great events. I wish I could have been there and seen them when they happened in biblical times. You know, the, the big events. You know, going across the Red Sea and certainly the resurrection would have to be one of the But just to have been there. But there's a lot of these other events that my mother's a little bit different. I would have wanted to have been there and just see how the people reacted, because some things are just so odd. Can you imagine being there when Moses made the connection between his hands being up in the air and Israel winning, and then his hands being down and Israel losing? How'd that go? You know, did he have any fun with Joshua with it? Joshua, look, no hands. You know, I don't know. But here's the point. After a while, everybody realized that the battle wasn't being fought in the valley. The battle was being fought actually on the mountaintop. That prayer wasn't preparation for the battle. Prayer was the battle. That's, that's, what's, that, that's what's going on here. They came to that realization. Now, what I need you to understand is that this is not just something that happens in Exodus chapter 17. This is life. We can't do anything unless we're totally dependent upon God. This is what we see in life. This is something that we need to understand, that there's a power that comes from depending on God through prayer, and it makes all the difference. Because so often we think, God, I got this. If I need your help, God, I'll let you know. I'm doing just fine. And nothing could be further from the truth. So we're totally dependent upon our connection to God. But it goes a step further. We're totally dependent upon our connection to God and to each other's prayers. If you learn anything from Exodus chapter 17, we need each other's prayers is what that's saying. I hate to burst your bubble for some of you, but, but that saying that God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. That's a rugged, individualistic American spirit that is anti-everything the Bible says about being part of a body and who we are. We need each other. We need each other's prayers. So as long as Joshua has Moses praying for him, they're doing okay. But the minute that stops, see, it's a visual display of a truth that too many times we live our life without. We're totally dependent upon God and we're totally dependent upon each other's prayers. In fact, let's sum it up this way. Our whole Christian faith is defined by our connection with God. Here's a verse for you in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. See, when I grew up, you know what eternal life was? Eternal life was 
with streets of gold and a mansion. But what Jesus is saying here is that eternal life is not pearly gates. Eternal life is a relationship with the Father, which we go, yes, I know, I know, I know. I get that. But I'm afraid that by the practice of our lives, it's showing us that we don't really get that. So let's go back and look at the history of this. Whenever Moses is traveling with the Israelites through the wilderness, he gives them very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, this, this huge tent. Very specific in the instructions. And inside that tent is called a most holy place. That's where the presence of God is. That only the high priest once a year could go in and everybody else stood outside wondering if he's going to survive that or not. And inside that most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. Like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, look inside, your eyes bug out, your skin melts off, and that's just the end. And that's what's there. And the idea was... That's the presence of God because that art represents the presence of God. You can't go in there. You can't survive that. No one can. On occasion, one person a year might be able to survive that. Other than that, don't even think about going in there. See, this was not a seeker-friendly type of atmosphere. This was you try and get to the presence of God. You're dead. You're just gone. That's the way they lived for centuries, for years. You stumble in, you die on the spot. Then when Jesus dies on the cross, you have all this weird stuff happening. You have darkness, you have earthquakes. And then inside the temple that was built on the same footprint as the tabernacle, that curtain that separated the inner temple to the most holy place was split from top to bottom. And it was God's way of saying, you don't need a temple, you don't need an ark, you don't need a priest, you can come in to the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. They go, wow. Never would we think that. Never would we think that. Because, see, they were brought up thinking, there's no way. But now, what we learn is that through the sacrifice of Jesus, once we've received that forgiveness, we've been cleansed, we have the opportunity to come before our Heavenly Father. So here, let's finish this statement. Our whole Christian faith is defined by our connection with God, so we should pursue being in His presence continually. The, the book of Hebrews talks about how since we have access where no one is supposed to have access, we should be pushing into the presence of God. Here's what it says in Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter into the sanctuary, the most holy place, since we have the, the boldness to do that, through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our hearts are sprinkled clean. That's the imagery used in the Old Testament. Moses would take what would look to us like a, 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 whisk, a big broom and dip it into a bucket full of blood and take it and just shake it on the people. 
And blood, spots of blood will fall on, on their faces, their heads, their clothes, their arms, everything. And you say, how gross that was. Yeah, it may not have been easy to take, but it was a reminder you can't enter the presence of God without sacrifice. And then with our hands washed with pure water, another imagery where the priest had to go through a ceremony washing before they could go into the presence of God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is like, Jesus has made a way through his sacrifice. You now have forgiveness of your sins. You've been cleansed inside and out. Now you can go into the presence of God. So, we have this ability to be in his presence. Constant communion with him. But it gets better than that. Here's the next thing. God desires this communion. God wants that with us. There was an elderly gentleman living in a nursing home. And every Sunday, his daughter, her husband, and two kids would come and visit. It was the highlight of his week. He was always outside waiting on them to come. Then years go by, he gets a little more feeble, especially in his mind, and, and, and he confuses the children's names. He can't remember where his room is at. But still, every Sunday, he's always there waiting for his daughter and her family to show up. And then one time, they show up, they're, they're, they're having their conversation, and she you know, notices his confusion even more that day, and she says, Daddy, what day is it? And he didn't know. Then she says, how did you know to wait for us today? He said, I wait for you every day. And that's the way it is with our Heavenly Father. See, he wants that communion with us. He didn't die on the cross just so we could come into his presence with a couple of three minutes of God, give me this, here's what I want, do this for me. He didn't rip that curtain from top to bottom just so we could come in and say, here's my list. He came in to do life with us. Life. That's why it says that he has brought a living way, a, a, a life-giving living way. This is, this is to be our life. He's given us his Holy Spirit so we could do our life with him, be in that constant communion with him. Always going through the day, factoring in God, thinking about Him, always being aware of His presence around us and what's going on. And we want to not even give that much thought. Here's something I, I know I've shared with you before. Let me back up. Here, it's from a, a book called No Bad Dog. And this is what the author Barbara Woodhouse writes. Thousands of dogs appear to love their owners. They welcome them home in, with enthusiastic wagging of the tail and jumping up. They follow them about their houses and happily, and to the normal person seeing the dog, the affection is true and deep. But to the experienced dog trainer, this outward show is not enough. The true test of real love takes place when a dog has got the opportunity to go out on its own as soon as the door is left open by mistake, and it goes off and often does not return home for hours. True love in, a, in dogs is apparent when the door is left open and the dog still happily 
stays within earshot of its owner. For the owner must be the all and end all in a dog's life. You see, the real question of Christianity is not what comes out of our mouth. It's not our words. It's not our works. It's when we have an opportunity to go through our day and not even give thought about God. It's when we have the opportunity to go through our day and, and we see a temptation and we run after that temptation when we choose to run after sin. Instead, what shows our Christianity is when those opportunities come to forget about God, to go after sin, and we say, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to forfeit the presence of God to run after something like that? That's when you see somebody who really gets it, who really understands the Christian life. That's somebody who spends time with God. Why would I want to forfeit that? Why would I want to forfeit my communion with God, sharing his life, being a part of his agenda, and, and seeing him work in my life and other people's lives? Why would I want to forfeit that and go after something else? So we read this in Revelation 3.20. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is Jesus. These are his words. And he's saying this to people in a church. And the idea is Jesus at the doors of their heart knocking, wanting to come in. Now I'm thinking it ought to be the opposite. We ought to be at his door, knocking on the door, banging at the door, peering through the windows, honking a horn, anything to say, God, let us in. We want to be in your presence. But no, He's saying he's in the door of our hearts. Because, see, Jesus is writing this to a church that had become, in his words, lukewarm. They had become self-sufficient. But probably more telling than that is that they quit thinking that connecting to God was anything special. That wasn't a big deal. to a group of people who probably defines our Christian culture more than we'd like to admit. So he's saying this, look, I want to commune with you. Just open the door and I'll come in and have that communion with you. And he uses the word for dying for an evening meal because in that culture, in the morning, they'd probably just grab a piece of goat cheese and be gone out the house. For, for lunch, they might have some goat cheese and a piece of bread, something very simple. But the evening meal, oh, that's when you took time and, and you had a spread and, and you took hours sometimes just enjoying that and eating. And you only did that with trusted friends. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, I want that communion with you. And if you'll just let me have it, I'm not going to come in and just beat you up. I don't come in and, and dine with you. I want that communion with you. We can approach God just like we'd want our children to approach us. How do you want your children to, children to approach you? Oh, when my kids were at home and I, and I would come home in the evening, 
I didn't want them to meet me at the door and go, omnipotent procreator of our lineage. You are wonderful in every way. I give honor on thee for bestowing our allowances upon us. We beseech you to come dine with us. I didn't want my kids to talk to me that way. My wife, maybe, but not my kids. <laughs> the thing is this. We should have that desire just to be in his presence, let his holiness wash over us, let his, his, his desires wash over us, let his agenda just wash over us. That should be, if not that time where we have with him and it's just us and him, it's just you and him talking during the day, that should be your whole day. Your Christianity depends upon that type of relationship. And guess what? Other Christians depend upon your prayers for them. This is, this is what life is all. This is eternal life. This is the Christian life right there. To know Him. To spend time in communion with Him. And sometimes, sometimes you're talking. Sometimes you're just there together. Sometimes it's in with the joys of life. Sometimes it's with the tears of life. Sometimes it's, it's when you just feel so close. Other times you're not sure what God is doing, but you're still committed. So let me ask you the question. And you don't need to raise your hand with this. But how many of you enjoy a communion with God every day? Now let me ask this. Before you, before you think about answering that. Let me make a statement first before I ask the question. Do you understand you can't be in God's presence without, changing, without it changing you? Don't tell me that, let's say, for instance, yesterday, you, you're going to say, yes, I was in communion with God yesterday. You know, I, I had that, that, that time with him. And, and just, in fact, all through the day, you know, we were together. And, and I learned what he wanted me to do that day just, just with his heartbeat. Don't tell me that you're doing that and, and still not a changed person. Because the Bible says we're being renewed day by day. To be in his presence, you can't leave the same. Or else you really weren't in his presence. You were just seeking to justify yourself. You were, you were just really focused on yourself. Because you can't enjoy a day in God's presence without coming out differently somehow. That's what it is. That's what it means to experience life. That's what it means to experience his presence. There will be something going on in your life. But Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, You're lukewarm. You become self sufficient. You don't think you even need me anymore. And you know what? They were still praying, they were still going through the motions. They still had some other stuff going on in their church. But they had missed the very heart of what it means to be a follower. 
that communion with God, that constant communion with him. So he had to go there and said, look, I want that with you. Just open the door and let me in. Quit shutting me out. And if you'd gone to the church, and if you just walked in that church one Sunday and said, you're shutting God out of your lives, they'd go, no, we're not. Look what we're doing. We're not shutting God out. But the evidence was there. And guess what? <laughs> the evidence is all over our Christian culture that we're just shutting God out. How can you look around and see what's going on today and deny that? I know we want to blame the culture, but the problem is not the culture. The problem is the church. And that's where it has to start at. For us being willing to repent and say, okay, God, I want to come back to you. I want that communion with you so that I can be in your presence every day and leave a changed person. Is that what you want? Is that what you desire? Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.